you would be the one to encourage those that are struggling physically, those that are struggling emotionally, relationally, by the presence of our Lord Jesus and your Holy Spirit. Give them encouragement this day. But Father, during this Christmas season, we would also pray that uh, we would celebrate the coming of Christ and that such a celebration would not be overshadowed simply by the giving of gifts or the lights or the music. Father, we pray especially for our young children, for those who have young grandchildren. We pray for them that even as they may easily get caught up in the celebrations, the, 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 the tangible aspects of the celebration of Christmas, that we might always remind them that it's the birth of our Savior, that we celebrate the coming of the Christ, the coming of Jesus to save us from our sins. Father, we thank you for that, and we celebrate that this morning. And Father, even as we turn our attention now to your word, we would ask that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us through your word, that we might in a very real way sense the presence of your Holy Spirit in this sanctuary, in our hearts, and in our lives, as we continue to worship you, as we study your word to us. We'll give you the glory for that, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it looks like I'm going to be holding a microphone this morning, which is fine, but if I fumble a little bit with my notes, you'll be forgiving. So that'll be uh, something that I would ask of you as well. When I was growing up, I never asked my parents why they named me Martin. I never even thought about it. Did anyone here ever ask your parents why they named you with your given name? Anybody here ever ask your parents why? A couple of you did. Wow, that's great. Because, you know, parents really struggle with naming children. <laughs> Sometimes they agonize. I mean, with our children, we, we had a name that we wanted for our son, and my best friend and his wife took it for their son first. Now, how, you know, how, how nice is that? And so we had to come up with another name. Naming children is not always an easy task. I think we're still struggling with the sound here. I'm not sure, but we'll make it work. We'll get it figured out. Naming children is not always easy. But as we celebrate Christmas, Mary and Joseph had it easy because they were told what to name their first child by angels. Nice of God to give them the name in advance, a special name that was entrusted to them beforehand, a name that had been eternally prepared for this baby because of the purpose for which the baby was being born. And it has a lot to do with what we celebrate as the purpose of Christmas. Now, last week, we celebrated Jesus being born as the Messiah, the one who would reign in David's line on David's throne forever. He was born to reign. That was a purpose of his birth. Today, we're going to celebrate another purpose of Jesus' birth, and it has to do very specifically with the name Jesus because he was born to redeem us. 
born to save us from our sins. This passage before us this morning is actually a passage that gives us the big picture in very condensed form of the circumstances leading up to Jesus' birth. You remember last week we were talking about the angel appearing to Mary, not in a dream, but in her waking hours, and explaining to Mary what was going to happen with her becoming pregnant. Now, that, that episode precedes this one. That episode precedes this one, but the angel then told Mary that the name would be Jesus. Sometime later, we don't know exactly how long. It could have been a few days or a few months. Mary is found to be with child, and Joseph finds out. Joseph finds out, and so again, the angel comes to Joseph and explains that this child is to be named Jesus and why, as we read this morning. But it, it is interesting that in the passage involving Mary, it was just one short period of time, a few minutes, in which she encountered the angel. Here we have possibly weeks, months, we have at least several months because Mary's pregnant and the end of the passage ends with the birth of Christ. So there's several months here encapsulated in these eight verses, okay? So I want you to see the distinction in the passages as well. But as we consider the name of Jesus, we understand better the purpose of his birth because it's evident in his name. Now, a little bit of the context. We're going to look specifically at verse 21 regarding the name. He will save his people from their sins. That's embedded in the name Jesus. We'll look at that in just a moment. But let me provide the context, a little better appreciation of what all is going on here. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. That's a legal relationship in the Old Testament. It's already legally binding upon them. It's legal. And so the understanding is, is that there would be complete fidelity between them. They already have developed a relationship, though not a sexual one. Now, you can imagine, Mary has the episode with the angel. She knows she's going to be pregnant. At this point, she is pregnant. Joseph's a carpenter. They're poor. They've been waiting 400 years for a word from the Lord, waiting 400 years for the Messiah. They're oppressed by the Romans. They're under the oppression of the Roman Empire. It's not a real rosy time for Joseph, but there's a bright light. He's going to marry Mary. He has a fiancé who cares and they're legally bound. And then he discovers this one bright light in his life, this Mary, is pregnant, and it's not his baby. Now we could ask ourselves, how did Joseph find out? Somebody must have told him. Did Mary tell him? We don't know. It's all speculation. Did Mary tell someone else? This is after she becomes pregnant, could have been pregnant for a few weeks, a couple of months, she tells someone and word of mouth gets back to Joseph. 
He confronts her. Or maybe, maybe after the angel appears to Mary, she tells Joseph very shortly thereafter, she says, look, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What do you think Joseph's response would be? Give me a break. Give me a break. Really? You're pregnant? And you say it's because of God. And she says, an angel came to me. And he says, I'm sorry. The law says, if you're pregnant, I have to divorce you. Legally divorced because they were legally betrothed. But Joseph is a righteous man, a caring man. You see, in the Old Testament, Mary would have been executed by stoning. That's the Old Testament law, even for those who were simply engaged or betrothed. She would have been executed by stoning. But Joseph says, no, I care too much for Mary. In the New Testament, I'm going to follow the divorce laws and allow her to be divorced and not simply exposed to shame, the shame of divorce. I'm going to do it quietly. I'm going to do it quietly because I do care about Mary. Well, that night, this time in a dream, (laughs) this time in a dream, the angel comes to Joseph. And the angel says to Joseph, who is a son of David, again in the Davidic line, because the Messiah had to be in the Davidic line, he says, do not be afraid. Now, why would the angel say, don't be afraid to Joseph? Maybe Joseph was afraid of the way people would talk if they found out he wasn't really the father. Maybe he was afraid that it was all a lie, and there was another father out there. We're not sure why, but the angel assures Joseph to not be afraid to take Mary home as his wife. And then he repeats what he told Mary. For the child that is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she'll give birth to a son. Well, now Joseph says, yes, okay, it really is of God. This really is a miracle. This really is the one we've been waiting for. The angel goes on to say that you will name him Jesus, and this will be Emmanuel, God with us, and the lights are coming on now for Joseph. And he says, all right, Lord, this is what I'll do. I'll take Mary home to be my wife. We'll do that even discreetly. We'll do that carefully. And I won't know her sexually until she has her son, our son, who is Emmanuel, God with us. Joseph obeys. Mary was submissive. She had to carry the child. But Joseph actually obeys God. He is submissive, but he says, all right, Lord, I will take her home as my wife, and he does. I will give the baby the name Jesus, and he does. Amazing. It seems to me that Joseph is an unsung hero of Christmas. We put a lot of emphasis on Mary, and rightly so. But Joseph is an unsung hero of Christmas because he is the one who makes possible the sequence of events that would lead to the birth of our Lord, not just in Mary's pregnancy, but in his fathering and the naming of the baby. So, now we understand how important this passage is in terms of 
Christ being born in the lineage of David legally as Joseph's son. Now we want to look at the name specifically and the implications of the name. Three implications that we want to look at. The name Jesus, he shall save. Secondly, his people. Third, from their sins. First, he shall save. Jesus is the name. Basically, it means Yahweh is salvation. Jesus is the Greek pronunciation, the pronunciation that we use. In the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it would have been Joshua. So people in the Old Testament named Yahweh is salvation would be named Joshua. Here we have Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. But there's a special application here by the linking of the name Jesus with Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. You see, all the Joshuas of the Old Testament were purely human, born of a man and a woman in the natural way. They were totally human. This child, this child is in fulfillment of prophecy. Fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 10 verses, or Isaiah 7 verses 10 through 14. In Isaiah chapter 7, King Ahaz is beset on all sides by his enemies, military enemies. And he's seeking deliverance, but he doesn't really believe God. And so we read these words. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test, which was really a lack of faith on his part. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of God also by not believing that God would deliver them? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Faith in the deliverance of God and the prophecy given to Ahaz had to do with deliverance and faith in that deliverance from God. And that deliverance of Emmanuel, God with us, became the focal point of all history. The birth of the Messiah, the Jews looking up to that. Since the birth of Christ, humanity looking back to that as the focal point of history. Even though in recent years, the last few decades, we've gotten away from that, in terms of our understanding of central focal points of history, we recognize that this Emmanuel, this God with us, is the focal point. Now, in order for Jesus to truly save, in order for Jesus to truly be Emmanuel, the birth had to be supernatural. It had to be the Holy Spirit, God himself, plus Mary in her human nature. So that what we have is the divine nature and the human nature coming together so that we have the inseparable combining of the human and the divine into one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. You see, a true mediator requires an undivided bond between both natures. Think of it this way. If you capsized your boat 
and the inhabitants of the boat are all drowning. None of them can save each other because everybody's drowning. Uh, one drowning person cannot save another drowning person, and we are all drowning in sin. If Jesus had been born of two human natures without the divine, he would not have been able to pay the penalty for sin because he himself would have been born with a sin nature. But Jesus was born without the sin nature, and he never sinned. He was divine as well as human. He was a human being so he could die for humans. He was God so that he could die for the sins of humans, not being a sinner himself. Drowning, one drowning person can't save another, but Jesus can save because he's Emmanuel, God with us. Second, the second phrase and some implications, he shall save his people. This is verse 21. He shall save his people. Who are his people? Well, initially it's the Jews. He came as the Messiah for the Jews. He came to die initially for the Jews in the line of David. He was to be the coming king in the line of David to die for the Jews, to reign over the Jews. But sadly, there were many like Ahaz and others who didn't believe, even though they were Jews. And so they didn't welcome him as their Messiah. The Jews didn't generally welcome him as their Savior. And so, even though there were some Jews who believed, had faith in Jesus, the Gentiles are also included. And in fact, we see that. We see that in, in Luke 10, the Gentiles being included who have faith in Jesus, which is the central factor in Luke 10, where the angel, as we heard this morning, the angel says to the shepherds, I give you good news of great joy, which will be for all people, not just the Jews. So though Jesus came initially for the Jews, that's been expanded to all people. Now, this shouldn't surprise us at all, because even in the Old Testament, God was reaching out to non-Jews. Throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, we see God reaching out to the nations that they would know him as their God. Think, for instance, of Jonah going to Nineveh. God cared about Nineveh, even though they were Gentiles. And so God sends Jonah to Nineveh that Nineveh might be redeemed through the message of the coming one. God cared about the Gentiles from the beginning, even though Jesus was born of the Jews and came to his own people. What matters is not, are you Jewish or Gentile? Do you have faith? His people are the people who trust him, who depend on him for what he has done for us. People who have faith. You see, salvation is offered to everybody but it's only given as a gift to those who receive it through faith. Hope is available to everyone. doesn't matter your background, your circumstances, your sinfulness. Hope is available. But you can only have that hope in Christ if you receive him as your Savior. We read this very clearly in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. 
where we read in verses 11 through 13, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he shall save his people from their sins. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, not of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You see what happens when we become one of his people through faith? We have a supernatural birth. We're born of God as well. Not that we become God in any way, shape, or form. We don't become God. But just as much as Jesus' incarnation was a supernatural birth, our new birth through faith in Christ is supernatural. Isn't that exciting? We have a supernatural birth through faith in Christ. We become one of his people. One of his people. And that is indeed good news. But finally, let's think for a few minutes about the third phrase in verse 21. From their sins. He shall save his people from their sins. Now, this is probably the most important part of this message because we need to understand precisely what it is from which Jesus saves us. You see, in the Old Testament, the concepts of salvation were usually related to tangible needs, especially military occupation, military warfare. So they talked about deliverance often in terms of military success. Think, for instance, think, for instance, of Moses leading his people out of Egypt against Pharaoh. Think of Moses leading the people across the Red Sea on dry land while the sea came back and swallowed up Pharaoh's armies. That's the kind of deliverer people were thinking of when they thought about the Messiah. Ahaz was looking for deliverance from tangible enemies. Tangible enemies. And the world, I believe, the world around us is still looking for salvation that is only applicable in this life. Tangible needs. Most people are wrapped up in what they want for their comfort, for their pleasure. That's what the world wants. The world seeks a savior for its own desires. Now, I, I give you an illustration here, not because I'm opposed to the giving of gifts. I think the giving of gifts is great to celebrate Christmas. But do you know that Black Friday was invented Black Friday was invented because people wanted more stuff at a lower price. They were concerned about their material needs. They were concerned about their economic needs. And so Black Friday came in kind of as the savior to get more stuff for more people at a lower price. All right, Black Friday. Unfortunately, it took the emphasis off of all of the spiritual aspects of the celebration of Christmas. And that happens over and over again in this world. People are looking for a savior from tangible needs rather from their deepest need, which is salvation from sin. And that's why the emphasis here and throughout the New Testament 
and the old as well, is on spiritual needs, the fundamental problem of sin. The fundamental problem of sin in human beings, as opposed to the very righteousness of God. God our Father is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just. And we need to admit that we are not. In our deepest beings, we are not. And so we need a Savior to bring us from that fundamental oppression of sin to sharing the righteousness of God. That's the recognition of our deepest, deepest need. And God satisfied that need where? On the cross. When Jesus died for our sins, in our place, paying the penalty for sin that we could never pay for ourselves because a sinner cannot pay the price of a sinner. Only God could do that. And we needed Jesus to be God. We needed him to be human so that he could take our place. We were alienated from God, and now through the cross, the work of Christ on the cross, we are reconciled with God. This is good news, people. This is an exciting message today. This is good news. We go from being alienated from God to being reconciled with God. One of the verse that is one of the verses in Scripture that is one of my favorites is 2 Corinthians 5:21. 2 Corinthians 5:21 simply says this: God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, to be sin for us, that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin. We get his righteousness. This is good news. He has saved us from the depths of sin to the heights of glory. You see, Jesus isn't some cosmic Santa Claus come to make us feel good and happy. That's why Jesus, Jesus wasn't born as a cosmic Santa Claus to simply make us feel good and be happy. He came to deliver us from ourselves to deliver us from our sin, that we might have a relationship with God. And he did that on the cross. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's all very nice to hear. That may be very nice to hear. But really, I'm just a follower of Jesus' example. I consider Jesus simply to be a, a, a moral example He's a good moral teacher, so I'm going to simply follow him in terms of the way I live, and that'll be good enough. Or some people will say, I like the idea of a Savior. I like the idea of Jesus, but all of this commitment stuff and submission stuff and obedience stuff, you know, that's really not for me. And so a lot of people will give lip service to Jesus, the idea of Jesus, in one respect or another, but simply following Jesus as a moral example does not save us. It doesn't. Any more than simply going to church saves us from our sins. And it's not the idea of a Savior that saves us. It's the reality of a Savior. What Jesus did in time and space and history and being born in a manger and then growing up 
teaching us of God and ourselves and then dying on the cross in our place, the death that we deserved because of sin. You see, what saves us is accepting the gift of Jesus' work on the cross. That's what saves us from our sins. Accepting the work of Jesus on the cross through faith, trusting him for that, depending upon him for that in our relationship with God. What is sad is so many people don't accept the gift. So many people don't accept the gift. You might think of the analogy of gift cards at Christmas. A uh, Harvard Business Review article of a number of years ago said that 75% of shoppers at Christmas time will buy a gift card for a loved one. 75% of people who are shopping buy a gift card or gift cards for gifts at Christmas. That's a lot of gift cards. But then it went on to say that between 2005 and 2011, a decade ago, between 2005 and 2011, 41 billion, billion dollars of gift cards went unused. Can you imagine that? People that were given a gift and they never used it. 41 billion dollars of gift cards went unused in a seven-year period. It is so sad. It is so sad. Maybe they didn't like the store that the gift card was for. Maybe they didn't like the restaurant that the gift card was for. Maybe they simply said, you know what, that's a nice gift card, but I'm going to wait to use it later on. I'll use it some other time. I won't use it now. Maybe that was their attitude. But the truth is that until we accept this gift, we are still lost in our sins. But Jesus came to save his people from their sins. It's a comprehensive salvation. Comprehensive. We are saved from the past sins, their penalty. We're no longer guilty. We're saved from the penalty of sin. Even now, we're saved from the power of sin. God's given us his Holy Spirit as part of the new birth to empower us to be able to not sin. We don't have to sin anymore. Its power is broken by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're saved from the power of sin. And there will come a day, there will come a day when we are saved actually from the very presence of sin. From the very presence of sin when Jesus returns. Sin will be gone in our lives, in those around us, and it will be heaven. We're saved from the, from the penalty of sin. We're saved from the power of sin. And there will come a day when we're saved even from the presence of sin because we have a comprehensive salvation in Christ. What we see then is that the incarnation of Christ was God's avenue for our reconciliation with him. He is exalted because of that. His name is exalted because of that. Jesus, you shall give him the name Jesus. He shall save his people from their sins. He was born in humility, in a manger. He lived a sinless life and he died a criminal's death on the cross in our place. And then through the resurrection and ascension, God has exalted him to the highest place at the right hand of God. 
Let me ask you this. How will Christmas affect you this year? Will you see the whole picture? How will Christmas affect you this year? We've talked about receiving a gift, a comprehensive gift. In 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul has an entire two chapters on the generosity of God and how should, that should affect the generosity of his people. But the final verse of 2 Corinthians 9 is an amazing one because Paul concludes that section with these words. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. The greatest gift in history, the most expensive gift in history. It's an unspeakable gift. Can we be like Paul and say thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift? With that thought, we want to turn our attention to communion this morning, to the Lord's Supper, to the celebration of the Lord's table and what he's done for us on the cross. I trust you all have your cups. Now again, I'm going to try to give careful instructions. <laughs> the clear plastic is peeled back first to reveal the bread. And only after we partake of the bread, then you'll pull back the pinkish lid, which will reveal the cup. So right now, kind of work on that clear plastic cover just to reveal the bread. Partaking of the Lord's Supper is for his people. That's the only requirement. If you are one of his people, as we have described in our message today, then you are welcome to celebrate what he has done for you in the forgiveness of your sins on the cross. And the bread and the cup are to remind us of that. But I want to take this opportunity just before we partake of the bread and the cup to simply ask that we would pray silently, and then I will conclude the prayer audibly, but that we would think about this unspeakable gift. And if, if we haven't accepted it, trusted him for it, that we would do so even now and then celebrate together through the bread and the cup. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, cleanse us from our sins through the work of Christ on the cross. May we know the freedom from the penalty. May we experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we look forward to that day when even the presence of sin will be eliminated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ's work on the cross. We do claim it for ourselves through faith. And Father, as we celebrate the bread and the cup, may it be with our hearts overflowing. Thanks be to God.
for this unspeakable gift. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Go ahead and peel back the plastic, the clear plastic. The bread. The bread represents the body of Christ. The body of Christ that was born as a baby and laid in a manger. The bread represents the body of Christ as a young man growing in the grace of God. The body of Christ that died on the cross, that was broken for us, paid the penalty for our sins. As we partake of the bread, let's remember the body of Christ. On the same night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now you want to peel back the pink without spilling. Peel back the pink lid to reveal the contents of the cup. The cup represents the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ coursing through a baby's veins. And the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross through the piercing of his side, through the thorns on his scalp. Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But we have the blood of Christ that will never lose its power. In the same manner also, Jesus took the cup after they had eaten and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Drink all of it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this celebration this morning of your goodness to us, this unspeakable gift. Thank you, Father, for your word that instructs us in these truths. Thank you, Father, for this season of celebration of who Jesus is and what he has done. His name is exalted. As we go forth from here, whether to our annual meeting or to other aspects of life. Father, throughout this day, may we remember what you've done for us. And may that carry us through every day until Christ returns. In his name we ask it. Amen.